long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. Welcome to the politics, guys. A place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Will Miller, political scientist, now employed as an associate vice president with Campus Lab. And joining me again today is Alexander Philandra, an associate professor of political science at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Alexander, it's great to have you back on the show and to be doing this again with you. Wonderful to talk to you again, Will. Yeah, and I think it's a, another fun week. I mean, this is obviously a week when we sort of set out to determine what to talk about, where obviously we're at that point in the, the political season or maybe the Trump presidency or the world in general, where we have plenty of things to choose from and plenty of things that we could uh, possibly look to discuss. So it's always nice when we have some, some fun options and some fun topics. But I figured maybe with uh, everything that happened in the last week that we'd start by actually talking about um, what I kind of coined President Trump goes to Europe um, and sort of how the Europeans perceived of Trump's trip, what happened in the UK, what happened with Normandy. Um, so let's start with, you know, what's your general sense on the trip and how it went for Trump? Well, um, I think the reviews are mixed. Um, it was a relief to people that uh, he appeared um, presidential in the very limited sense of uh, sort of carrying out duties um, while giving the speech about Normandy with that were not uh, politicized, that were not about American uh, partisan politics, uh, that were not spiteful or anything, that it was actually the script that he was supposed to follow in uh, a solemn occasion like that. Um, but then all kinds of uh, strange uh, uh, things uh, followed him from there. Um, his response to Pelosi, the fact that he took the entire family there who were doing their own uh, business, um, the fact that he stayed in his own uh, uh, hotel in Ireland and flew over to France for uh, the festivities and for events from there rather than staying in France. Um, the What he said uh, to the uh, Irish prime minister uh, while in uh, the official visit there, um, the whole presentation with the queen and the official dinner with the queen, um, everything that surrounded the... Uh, the visit seemed to be off compared to uh, the way American presidents traditionally have uh, done things in Europe and presented themselves in Europe. I mean, you didn't even mention the the tweet storm upon landing towards the mayor of London either, um, which obviously I think had people extremely concerned about how the rest of the trip was going to go, given that it started right before touchdown with um, some fairly direct and fairly derogatory comments. Um, but some are going to argue also some very blunt comments um, that are in line with what Trump has historically believed and historically said. And I think that's kind of the the question I'm faced with after this this visit. The Normandy speech, I would say, was probably the, the best moment of Trump's presidency. Um, and I say that even if the bar wasn't, as you kind of pointed out, maybe a little bit lower, given that we're just happy he stayed on script. I think even if he was a more traditional practice president, that that speech would have been a, a shining light. But even in the speech, if we really think about it and we look at the content, it emphasized what Trump normally emphasized, 
it wasn't about group action. It was about nationalism. He was very clear in calling out individual countries and their contributions to the war effort, as opposed to seeing this as an all versus all or an all versus some. Um, so, I mean, even those undertones kind of appeared in that sense as well, maybe more than uh, we're necessarily giving credit for still making sure it did mission align with his sort of political vision for the world. No, I think you're right. It is it is true that the the speech itself we are we have basically we were um relieved because the delivery uh was uh quite uh within the normal bounds of uh, presidential politics and uh, the speech itself were, was within again sort of normal bounds but the message you're absolutely right was a fairly nationalistic message even though he talked about um you know the the assistance that nations gave to each other it was from the perspective of um individual nations it wasn't the one world uh we are all one uh, approach to international politics for sure yeah, and I mean, I think that's a, a key piece of this is knowing that he has still stuck to that message and been able to appropriately, in this case, align it with, with a larger event, an event that I believe it appears pretty clear that he recognized was significantly greater than than he himself as one individual. Um, but if we go back and kind of talk about the, the British swing, at the initial takeoff here, I mean, if we look at what happens to the mayor, if we look at, as you've kind of described, some of the the awkwardness and in the interactions between in the state dinner, the bringing of the entire family, um, even the push for the next generation conversation. I know that caused a lot of um, concern uh, with some American voters and especially some on the left, the idea that he wanted uh, Prince William and Prince Harry to meet with uh, Ivanka and John, du- John Jr. and the next generation of leaders almost viewing himself as, you know, the first in a, a long line of maybe hereditary American leaders. Are there positives to that approach, or is this all something that's going to be looked at, you know, two months down the road as questionable and a drain on taxpayers? I don't see a lot of positives, but I don't think there will be time given um, the the way the political time evolves uh, these days in the United States. I don't think that we'll remember what happened in Europe in, uh, in June by September, because by September we will have the 12 uh, Democratic debates and, uh, you know, uh, 11 whatever and, like, 23 candidates. And uh, it's like, um, we are we ha- will be so incredibly busy that uh, it, it's really hard to be reflective and retrospective and be able to put things into context when so many things are happening constantly. Um, and it's not just, I mean, it, it was very strange to see him talk about um, the, the next generation, but it was also incredibly strange to again push back that there were no protests and all the people who were out on the street were there to celebrate him when clearly that was not the case. and. He was once again lying, and we have seen him basically fib and promote fake news so frequently that it's altering reality for us. I mean, it's it's just, we can't 
What do you do with that? Yeah, and I mean, it is kind of a full-time job to figure out, you know, where where are we stretching? Where are things coming out of left field or right field? Um, where is he maybe taking a, a true point and using it in a different way than intended? I think that's definitely a different piece of this presidency. I think that's my big question still in general. Um, and Alexandra, I don't know what you've seen with your colleagues, but being completely transparent, I, and I've said this before on the show, I have former colleagues that um, I respected and, and really appreciated their academic insights that I have zero faith in anymore because they are just blinded by their political leanings and unable to even attempt to objectively assess what Trump does or doesn't do. Um, and I think what's been interesting to me is it almost feels like in some ways the way that Trump is being perceived within, again, the ivory tower within academics is that we don't like him because he doesn't fit a box. Like, it's not even necessarily that we're opposed to the Twitter storm that happens when he lands in London, as much as we have no historical comparison. We don't know how to compare what he's doing in Europe versus what previous presidents have done who have followed tradition, because to be honest, Trump just doesn't care about tradition. I think we've, we've seen that at this point pretty clearly. Um, so my question is, you know, how are academics in your eyes going to handle the Trump presidency five or 10 years down the road when we do our academic reflection, given the fact that, you know, this isn't a guy who falls into a typology. There's not a previous leader where we can say he's a lot like this and how he behaves because he just says what he wants to say. Uh, and that's very new for us. Well, I think in many respects, uh, he will be a baseline for basically we will adjust all of our um thinking about the presidency on the basis of this as the low point baseline um, in terms of like what is like the absolute outlier uh, in terms of uh, behaviors, in terms of uh, commitments to policy, in terms of um, knowledge, interest, um, you know, ability to process. Um, I mean, he is a complete outlier in uh, 99% of dimensions. Um, and I don't know that Trump doesn't care about tradition because depends, it's, it depends on what you mean by tradition because he certainly cares about pop, pomp and circumstance and tradition in that sense. When, um, you know, to, to show up and put on formal, formal wear and uh, be with the queen, that type of tradition he's very much into. Um, the other kinds of traditions that are hampering him and that are frustrating him, then he doesn't like it. It's not the tradition he doesn't like, it's the constraints that certain types of norms put on him. That is true. That and I guess even like. thinking about the, the 4th of July parade idea and all of those pieces, that's definitely tradition-based. And I think you're right. The point I was really getting at was if it's tradition for the sake of tradition and he doesn't see personal benefit, that tends to get punted out the window. I mean, if I'd go back and make the historical argument, this is not the guy the framers would have wanted setting tradition like Washington did for future presidents, obviously. A sense, well, and in a sense, he's going to be setting up the lower bound of traditions, like the what not to do. Uh, you know, you don't put your daughter and brother and son-in-law um, as top advisors. You don't 
select personnel in government based on who can protect your personal interests. You, you, all the things that you don't do and that other people in the past, other presidents, other candidates sort of followed on a normative base um, because they recognized it or basically thought that this, there would be way too much pushback. Um, so they did it whether they liked it or not. Um, now I think there is going to be an effort to actually um, certain norms become uh, laws and become sort of transcribed and and in stone. And we're seeing that with um, legislation in states that require um, presidential candidates to submit their tax forms. Um, and we will be seeing that with the more and more um, legislation that would have to do with <coughs> clarifying what an executive can and can't do. Like, you know, officially, no, Ivanka cannot be a presidential advisor. Yeah, and I think that makes makes sense. And I think that's definitely reflecting sort of the, the protein nature of norms and expectations of a president. And I do think you're right on a baseline. I'm not going to necessarily agree that this will forever be the low on the baseline across all dimensions. But I do think it's definitely kind of that that gut check of, okay, we've seen one extreme, we've seen another extreme. What is it we actually want out of a president? Because I do think, and we're going to talk about this here in a little bit, but you know, if we go back to the Midwestern voter, who's the, the topic of interest for the next few years in a lot of ways, there are a lot of people there that still may not appreciate Donald Trump's policies, but do appreciate the bluntness and the transparency with which he shares frustration. Um, I think that still resonates, and it's going to be figuring out how do we balance acting presidential and being presidential on a world stage with still being willing to call a spade a spade uh, when push comes to shove. From uh, my perspective, like uh, how I understand uh, partisanship from a psychological perspective, um, the the behavior it's sort of incidental they i think that people that in today's uh, america partisanship has become such a strong social identity that people are willing to um justify and accept and become enthusiastic even for any kind of behavior so i think that if trump tomorrow became you know a model reserved politician like, you know, the prime minister of Japan, um, you'd still have the Republicans saying, that's great. Um, and and you see that flip, you know, there was this really funny, not funny um, situation with Hannity the other day where he was, um, you know, without any irony, um, aghast that uh, the Democrats are trying to pursue um, uh, impeachment, and that Nancy Pelosi said that you know, in her view, uh, Trump should be in prison and she'd want to see him in prison. And without any sense of irony or history, you know, Sean Hannity turns around and says, you know, we are not a banana republic that seeks to lock up. A political opponent, and I'm like, this is not even funny. <laughs> like, you don't remember like what you were saying two weeks ago. Lock and, her up. And the, yeah, exactly. Lock her up. And the thing is, 
you know, he sort of changed what he say, and um, a lot of um, the the partisans follow. And this is, uh, of course, um, on both sides. This is not a Republican thing because it is also funny to see the enthusiasm about um, free trade among Democrats. Like, Democrats suddenly have become, like, so in love with free trade. It's like, what happened to the leftist and socialistic sort of uh, part of of the Democrats? Um, And that wasn't there six years ago. That's entirely a, a, a key change recently. Yeah, I mean, it's like the idea, like that the left has fought free trade for over a century, and suddenly you have um, a Republican uh, president who is uh, impo- imposing tariffs and protecting national industries, and and the left is like screaming and pulling its hair out, and it's like, wow, what happened to you people? Yeah, exactly. So it, it's you see this um, equivalent response that is a partisan emotional response has nothing to do with the merit of uh, of the policy or the behavior, um, and uh, which actually in itself the fact that that's how we respond to politics as uh, group members and like sort of and that's it in many ways is. Um, it's quite scary. No, I definitely agree. Um, it's definitely kind of that vitriol response that we see a lot of people having today, like you said, regardless. Uh, I do think if Trump came out tomorrow as the model leader, there'd be a whole lot of questions and concerns about what's happened to him. But I do agree. I don't think his numbers are going to, quote unquote, change per se based on um, People rationalize. They just... Uh, are able to really easily rationalize in politics in order to reduce, um, you know, the uncomfortable feeling of uh, what is known as dissonance. So you find uh, a nice post-facto explanation that says, uh, you know, no, he has never been uh, aggressive and... uh, you know, having these Twitter storms or whatever. That never happened. I mean, you know, when people actually, I mean, when there's um, experimental evidence that people, when you show them pictures from the inauguration, um, they tell you, no, this is a full stadium or this is a full arena or whatever. And, uh, you know, the picture clearly is not what it's showing. And basically partisanship literally blinds you to pictorial reality. It's really easy for people to actually, out of partisanship, to, to just, you know, completely uh, reinvent reality tomorrow. And, of course, the problem here is that normal politicians put a bit of a constraint to this. They use what, we, what is known as spin, but they didn't used to go beyond spin. Because spin is sort of the early form of fake news. You sort of push for a narrative that is consistent with you, with what you want to say, which may not be exactly consistent 100% with reality. Like, if you made a mold of reality and put the thing on top, they, they wouldn't quite fit. But it wouldn't be a completely different thing either. 
now we are in the in the time where reality doesn't matter anymore and you just say whatever and people apparently are willing to eat, go along even with that but I think that's what people want. I'm going to push back on that. I think in the age of social media, people want to be able to say whatever they want to say and put it out whatever way they want to put it out. And all we're seeing here is back to that norm question of a president who's doing the exact same thing that every other person in America that's on social media is basically doing, where we pick and choose what we share, how we share it, how we contextualize it. No matter what we say, half the people respond with, yes, you're right, and half the people respond with, that's wrong. So I think it's a larger societal symptom that that's where news comes from today, when it's always through one person's view of what that news is. Yes. I mean, we have personalized reality, in a sense, and uh, we don't have a neutral, in quotes, uh, arbiter, which the evening news and newspapers used to be with whatever slight slant they used to have. Today we have pretty much, we're back into, you know, the 1840s with partisan newspapers and partisan uh, sources of information um, and all your reality and all your information essentially is coming from, from there. But even with that, like again, you know, I I have uh, spent enough time, um, a good portion of my life in Europe, where you do have um, a tradition of partisan newspapers. Um, but even there, where the, the newspapers clearly take a partisan position, it it wasn't at least you know in uh, in the nineties and the to early two thousands that. You know, I was I was a witness to this. Um, it wasn't a complete breakdown of reality. It wasn't, you know, what up is down and what down is up. Um, today, it's like basic um, facts it ha- are being questioned, um, and uh, and it and sometimes it becomes funny, right? Because you know. Um, Trump sends Pence out to talk about how we're going to go to the moon and how it's important for the U.S. to go to the moon. And then he comes out on Twitter yesterday and says, who wants to go to the moon? That's ridiculous. That's a waste of of money. We've already been to the moon. Like, I I have no idea. And it's even more ironic there on the same day that NASA says that you can rent the International Space Station for $35,000 a night for astronauts. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's insane. And then you have the, I believe, the FDA administrator saying that uh, what of a, a, a double-blind you know, uh, experimental trial is having two research teams working blindly and independently of each other. And... Uh, that that's the one that had me freaked out because <laughs> like I like having access to <laughs> drugs that are you know um, checked and tested by the FDA and when the FDA administrator uh, says things like that I kind of uh, worry about you know whether the aspirin that I give to my kid is safe. Absolutely. Let's switch gears a little bit. Um, we're obviously going to keep talking about Trump through 
probably all of our stories on this episode. Um, but obviously, also yesterday, another piece of news that came out was the release of the most recent job report, uh, which still showed growth, but did not show the same growth that had been originally estimated or anticipated. And then obviously, now we have questions about how do we think the Fed's going to respond to this. Unemployment's sitting stable. We're looking about the addition of 100,000 new jobs every month. It's going to keep unemployment where it is, but there are still obviously those overarching questions of, you know, not even necessarily at this point if, but when. Is the Fed going to lower the interest rate? I guess my question, Alexander, is really twofold for you. What do you think the Fed's going to do? And more importantly, um, can Trump still claim that he's leading to the job growth he, he would like to be able to claim and also keeping the economy at a place where his poll numbers should stay fairly neutral? Well, there are several issues here. First of all, um, the job report itself was weaker than expected. Um, and uh, Trump pointed people through his Twitter t- tweets um, to the the response by the market. The market went up, but the market went up in anticipation of a Fed uh, response of lowering the uh, the interest rate. Um, I don't know. Uh, whether the Fed will react this quickly. They're not known to respond that immediately. So, I, I, I mean, in the, if the next quarter, if through the summer, um, we see a continuous dip to the job market and we see um, other pressures to the economy, um, they will have to, to act and cut interest rates uh, a bit. But an in- interest rate cut is um, a very blunt instrument to have an effect on the economy. And here, the underlying problems of uh, the American economy, one is uh, fundamental instability because of the political climate. Um, business just don't, don't know what's happening tomorrow. Uh, and they can't plan uh, because uh, realistically, you know, they hear about changing rules, changing regulations, deregulation, liberalization of this and that. But the reality is that those things are not likely to last because there is very little chance that any democratic administration um, or any, even a Republican administration, but with the Democrats having. Uh, more power um, in Congress, uh, and I'm talking about one that doesn't involve Trump. I'm talking about more of a, you know, regular type of administration. That a lot of these things are not going to be taken away. So, you know, Trump is just signing executive orders and saying that he's going to do things, and um, his uh, bureaucrats are basically cutting down programs willy-nilly without evaluation or anything else. Um, I was talking to a friend who is um, an expert on uh, bureaucratic politics and on the bureaucracy, and uh, she was saying that this is not an attempt to reduce the size of uh, the administrative state. This is basically taking a really huge, you know, hatchet knife and just slashing whatever's in front of you without rhyme or reason. Um, 
like there there is no evaluation there is no um assessment for of anything uh it's just happening and that has huge consequences um for a lot of things but one of the things is that there is no credibility among the business community and there shouldn't be that these things are going to last so they can't make decisions in many ways based on the cues that they're getting from uh, from this administration um then talking about jobs um one thing is that and we have talked about this uh and it is a well-known fact the job the unemployment numbers are in a sense not the best um <coughs> evidence of how well society is doing because the kind of jobs that are available for people are part-time jobs they're jobs that are not they're minimum wage jobs they're not the kind of jobs where you can raise families and that is a big problem um there is also the the extra problem that any uh benefit that uh, Americans uh, in the middle class saw from the the infamous tax cut have been erased because you know Walmart increased its prices due to the tariff against China uh so actually you know what we're paying um around the country uh for product is is going up so um all of that figures into market response and to the economy and uh for a lot of people a lot of economists are foreseeing a significant downturn within the next year or two um these of course are things that are very hard to predict but they don't well, and, and we know they're hard to economy. predict because they predicted that downturn a year ago and it still hasn't necessarily shown up i mean to your point i think the the thing if i'm trump that concerns me about this is that the pace of hiring in may declined probably the most dramatically in sectors that were really dependent on trade which to your point i think shows that the tariff impact is starting to to take hold a little bit um and i don't think that's something that obviously as we talked about earlier trumps the best at in terms of thinking about spillover effect um the immediate political gain for that move was felt but now we're dealing with the 6 months 8 months 12 months later when we start to see the economy respond to those policy switches because whether he likes it or not the economy doesn't move and adjust at the same speed that Trump does on policy that is absolutely the case and uh, it's not just um the sectors hit by the the tariffs where they're losing employment it's the whole um agriculture and farming uh uh domain where it has been hit incredibly hard both by tariffs on one hand and the weather with climate change like um my family was supposed to actually drive to Tulsa this past week um for for an event and uh, there was no way you can't get past St. Louis it's too dangerous i'm not taking uh a 5 month old in a car through an through Jonesboro um if i'm going to be uh, you know 10 feet underwater um the entire heartland is underwater like uh you know the, the catastrophe both in economic terms and in uh, societal terms is huge and uh we have seen that 
um, the the response from the the government has not been sufficient when it comes to uh, recovery efforts um, from uh, from natural disasters. Uh, Texas is not recovered. I'm not even going to mention the word Puerto Rico. Florida is not recovered. So, so, Panhandle just finally getting yeah. its recovery bill passed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and they're, they barely uh, got that bill uh, through through Congress. Um, I mean, uh, what's and that shows the ability, the inability of the administration um, to coordinate uh, on policy because you know you need people at the top who have plans and who are managers and who push these things through. And uh, you know, judging from this uh, FDA administrator, um, they don't. A lot of these people don't have that. Yeah, not at all. And I think this is a, a good bridgeway. I mean, we can keep talking, obviously, about the job report and how it ties together. But you've mentioned the Midwest. And obviously, we have um, the question over the, the tariffs on Mexico, which uh, yesterday I thought we were going to be having one conversation today. Today, we're going to be having a different conversation. But the idea of the threatened 5% escalating to up to 25% tariffs on certain imports from Mexico is an effort to force Mexico to take ownership of some of the Central American migration patterns through their country into the U.S. And it looks like as of last night, Trump has declared victory and success in this. I'm not sure I've seen enough detail to really know what's happened um, or to know whether there will be an actual impact. But even getting Mexico to publicly state that we will do more to assist U.S. efforts to ensure that there is not a, a continued northern migration through Mexico into the U.S does seem like a step forward. I mean, obviously, for Trump supporters, this is another case of he has called out a country, he has put a, a pretty clear threat in place, and he's seen some type of reaction, some type of response. Now, whether that's going to be longstanding or something where Mexico is saying it today, but um, won't be able to um, continue long term, we're not sure. But it does seem like a step in the right direction. Obviously, Chuck Schumer thinks it's a step in the right direction, even if it's facetious in terms of saying that this is so great that President Trump has won this battle. We will never have to hear about Mexican immigration again, which we all know is is not true or realistic. But what's your response to, number one, the threat of the tariffs in the first place, and number two, the deal that was brokered yesterday? The threat of the tariffs is uh, just astounding to me, given the relationship with Mexico and how integrated the Mexican economy and the U.S. economy are basically for all in, for econo- on economic. If you see it from an economic perspective, Mexico is the 51 state of the United States. Um, we get a huge amount of uh, agricultural products. Like all the tomatoes we get are from Mexico. Uh, all of our avocados are from Mexico. All kinds of uh, uh, important food stuff come from Mexico, and. Um, yeah, you know, nobody's going to enjoy it if uh, the price of tomatoes is fifteen pounds, fifteen dollars a pound. Um, so You're leaving out tequila. Yes, exactly. It's because I'm a vodka drinker. Um, so, like, that's the only <laughs> one that you know um, Mexico won't get me on that one. But um, the the consequences for Mexico and for us of instability in Mexico are huge. 
because basically, essentially by threatening tariffs and imposing tariffs on Mexico, um, forget about the fact that we are paying for the tariff. Um, the the impact, the negative impact that it can have on the Mexican economy can be incredibly destabilizing. Mexico only in the past 10, 15 years has been able to turn its economy around and actually have a growth level that um, is able to uh, provide for, for the basic, for basics for the population. Mexico has a huge problem with police violence, the societal violence, the gangs, uh, the drug war, <clears throat> weakening the government of Mexico and weakening the economy of Mexico um, increases instability in the country, makes all of these things more dangerous and more threatening, which basically in the medium term means that more Mexicans are going to want to come to the United States and cross the border. So, so ultimately now, the exact opposite of what we wanted to do. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so this is basically, I mean, hitting yourself in the face. Uh, it's it's but a really shoring up the base at the same time. Absolutely. And every um, every move that the Trump administration seems to be, this is an administration that is not even thinking, it's thinking about the base in a very, very narrow sense. Because the Republican base is diverse. Um, you know, since 2016, we have sort of, come to boil it down to, you know, the guy with the MAGA hat who is, uh, yeah, can barely speak proper English and is fat and is just like, is a cartoon, right? Uh, the white guy who's like really happy to hear Trump say bad things about others. Yeah, and to be honest um, here, it's the same characterization that people gave the Tea Party as being a bunch of tinfoil hat-wearing freaks. When in yeah, reality, they were able to carry eight, nine, ten people to the U.S. Senate using just that approach. And and I mean, you have basically, yeah, boiled down to a stereotype who the who the Republican voter is, and who the Trump base is maybe slightly different from what the who the Republican is. But the certainly the president is laser focused on a very, very specific segment, uh, which is um, the white, evangelical, very, very conservative um, part of his base. Um, so, which is why we're seeing now, uh, all of a sudden, money being pulled out of universities that are doing uh, research with existing um, gene lines that are based on um, uh, fetuses, aborted fetuses. Um, we are seeing like these signals that are straight, going straight to that particular group. Um, and also the immigration stuff. I mean, the immigration thing has been uh, Trump's signature policy, and he is uh, dead set on 
you know, delivering something, delivering this wall and delivering on the immigration thing. Um, and there, I mean, the latest thing that I heard, which was pretty scary, was that um, he has instructed as part of uh, a renovation of the of the existing uh, wall, the, the barrier, to be painted pitch, pitch black uh, so that when you touch the metal, you get burned. And um, that he wants to put uh, spikes at the top of the uh, of the barrier. That that's pretty medieval. Um, but it is medieval. But here's the question: I don't think Trump actually wants to burn people or hurt people. But I think it's showing that if you don't want to play in the middle ground of I want a safe barrier that keeps people out, if I have to raise to this level so that we eventually fall back to where makes the most sense. I mean, the guy is good about throwing out extreme alternatives, and then it's us trying to figure out what's the actual intention. Well, I think, you know, he, he, somebody who is willing to throw out extreme alternatives is also willing to accept these extreme alternatives as legitimate. Because there are things that, you know, for most people, there are places where you don't go. For example, like, I want to discipline my child, but I will never tell my child, you know, if you don't do X, I'm going to put your hand on the stove and burn it. Um, because, A, I think that this is, you know, outside the norms of, you know, appropriate behavior for a parent, and B, because I do not want DCF to show up at my door because it's actually not legal. Um, but he is willing to break laws to to make his point. And actually, um, the best example of that that relates to the border is, you know, the new policy on what they plan to do with kids at the border and the fact that they're wank- yanking out educational programs and legal aid for the uh, the refugee children who are held in, in border detention facilities. It is illegal. It is plainly illegal. Um, but he doesn't have a problem behaving in illegal ways if it signals um, toughness on one hand and, like, it pleases his core uh, constituency who also don't have a strong, uh, you know, negative uh, response to the fact that something like this is illegal. No, and I think the what's happening on uh, with the refugee children right now is obviously a, a topic of relevance here to this greater conversation. Um, and, you know, obviously, I mean, I'm going to come from the mindset of we don't owe anyone, um, child or otherwise, more than what is, quote unquote, legally required. But I also do see the, the concerns, not just the educational piece, the recreation time with the legal rights training, um, you know, for, for kids that are already in scared, awful situations. I don't see what the benefit is long term to not helping them continue to grow, develop, and at least feel safe. Um, and again, I use safe in quotes here just because I don't know what safe looks like for a refugee child. I've never been in that situation. Um, obviously, it's, it's one where it's hard to imagine the level of fear and terror, 
But what we can do to minimize that is likely going to lead to better long-term relationships than by stripping out everything and basically locking the kid in a room for the length of time they're stuck in a detention center. I think that's hard to argue against no matter where you fall. Even though when I look at it from a pure political legal standpoint, I'm kind of like, well, we have a checklist of things we have to do. There are really cheap, easy ways to fill those things without necessarily getting at the spirit of the law. But I mean, for the love of God, when it's kids that are involved, the kid didn't choose to end up on that board. Exactly. And also, you know, from a longer standing perspective, think of it this way. Whether these kids stay in the U.S. because their cases are adjudicated and a judge says, no, they can, they have to stay, or they're sent back. You're saying these kids are staying in these facilities for a year, two years. It could be a long time. Um, depriving them of education and depriving them of basic emotional stability, uh, which is involved with recreation, with human contact, with like being in a you know humane environment, has long-term emotional and material consequences for these kids. So basically, you are helping these kids. You're putting them into the crime pipeline, essentially, because these kids <coughs> will have less education than makes them competitive. They will have less resilience because of these very horrific experience. Um, and then whether they stay here or they go back to their countries, they're going to be a problem population that had no reason to be a problem population. You're creating it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the key is what we're doing there. And I think, you know, if we're going to say this is budget-based and budget-driven, there are other areas I would much rather see cut, attack, change, um, as opposed to anything involving kids that find themselves on the border for, through no choice of their own. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the reason that there has developed a crisis at the border is because the Trump administration has made the decision that every single person who seeks to cross the border, regardless of the reason offered, um, will be detained. Um, they make no differentiation across types of um, border crossers, across types of, of people who are seeking to cross the border. So. Uh, if you are treating refugees and uh, economic migrants and everybody else from any country in the exact same way, um, then you are creating a crisis. This is not because such a huge number of people have showed up at the border. We had periods where a lot more people um, came through the border, but there were other procedures in place. Um, to to basically deal with them rather than detain them. And clearly, detention, putting them in prison, is not really um, affecting their their behavior. The, the idea is that if you put them in jail, uh, other people will be uh, basically uh, deterred and not come. But when your choice is between you know, a war-torn neighborhood in Guatemala where you're really, your life is at risk, you know, 
trying to get through the American border may not be such a bad deal. I don't disagree with that. But that is where I come back to for those individuals trying to get through the border may not be that big of a deal, but that doesn't make it my responsibility to make it easy or welcoming at the same time. Um, the moral and the legal there for me start to blur a little bit more because I feel like anybody could show up on the border from anywhere with a uh, a right or a made up or a fabricated sob story that would merit full inclusion. And we see this with asylum here where, you know, I feel bad today for people that have actual legitimate asylum claims because there are so many fake asylum claims or stretch asylum claims that it waters down the ones that really would be at imminent risk. So it's figuring out how do we pull out the people that really do need the opportunity and need to get out of a bad situation versus those that are just looking for something different and show up with the same tale. The bar for asylum claims to be approved is so unbelievably high. Absolutely. Yeah, they don't make it easy, but just the fact that you can file it and try to make that claim. But, you know, in any humane society, you should give the benefit of the reason to somebody who says, you know, I am in danger. Like, what do you do if a person shows up at the door and says, somebody with, you know, a knife is coming after me, please, you know, give me refuge. Just hide me behind your couch. Don't you have a moral responsibility to a certain extent to help? I do. But at that point, I would argue that I would have the same moral responsibility if every North Korean filed paperwork tomorrow saying that they're in imminent danger under their leader and they all wanted to come here. That would be the same moral equivalency in some, to some degree. Well, I agree. I mean, uh, yes, there, there are large numbers of people who are uh, in danger. Uh, and if they were to apply for, uh, for asylum, you know, the moral responsibility would be to basically help them. Um, and yes, there are logistical and practical considerations there. Uh, but the moral responsibility remains it's separate. I agree. It is separate. And I think that's the difficulty is how do we bring those moral, uh, not requirements, but those, that moral pool together with what is practical or realistic. And then obviously comes back to diplomacy and how do we help other countries. If you look at it in a situation like I mentioned admittedly, the answer would be you get rid of the problem that's causing all of those people to feel that way as opposed to catering to all of the individual people. Um, and that's significantly easier said than done, as history has shown us over and over. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and the thing is, uh, unlike what the uh, people believe here, uh, most people don't want to leave their country. And most people, you know, are happy with what they have so, so long that they have enough to eat and that, you know, they're not in danger. Um, because if economic theory, micro, microeconomic theory that basically immigration is an issue of supply and demand, um, were true, given the discrepancy between salaries in basically every part of the world and the U.S., you would have basically 5 billion people seeking to come to the United States. But that's not the case. And the reason that that's not the case is that economic factors are not the strongest drivers 
of um, migration demand um, across the world. People don't want to leave their countries unless they have to. It's very few. It's only a very small percentage of the population that is risk-seeking enough to want to actually move for the purposes of advancement. Most people will only move if they feel unsafe. Yeah, I agree. I don't think people want to leave. I don't think this is something where we have, you know, a line of willing movers that are saying, I just want to go here to move forward. Um, and I think that's another thing we have to obviously figure out how do we factor that into our considerations and our conversation. Um, obviously, I, what I like about this this week is that, you know, to some degree, all of these stories have tied together very nicely. And with the fact of the job report, how we could respond to that, what we're seeing with the Mexican tariff, um, and obviously the, the deal that was ultimately reached, and then the changes in what we're seeing with border uh, and kids, I mean, it suggests that there's obviously that larger global problem that unfortunately or fortunately, depending on the, the lens you take, um, we'll likely be talking about here for, for quite a while to come. So I think that's a good place to end for this episode. I want to thank everybody for listening. We hope you like what you heard. Listener support what keeps the show going. We truly appreciate it. Uh, you can subscribe to the show, which also really helps us out. It's easy to do in the podcast app. You can click that triangle typically up in the upper right-hand corner somewhere. Um, Word of mouth is obviously our best advertising, so please, if you like what you're hearing from us, continue to share that out, and we'll greatly appreciate that. And leave reviews or ratings on iTunes as well. If you have questions, comments, corrections, random thoughts you want to share, you can reach out to us at mail at policyguys.com. Our Facebook page, where we tend to communicate throughout the week, share stories. Um, In my case, I like to lob out grenades and watch people respond to them. It's facebook.com forward slash policy page and we're on twitter at policy executive producers of the policy guys are michael baronowski jay carson bruce johnson wilmer moreno and benji fishman today's show was produced by will miller we'll be back with a new show on wednesday and we hope you'll join us then